owe you, Hamilton. You've done so much for us, but oh my God. I've always loved that song, but I think I also just love like the angst and revenge that they have. You just feel it. She is at the top for everybody because her voice fits perfectly in how it was meant to be written. Da, 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 da. <laughs> Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Off to Broadway, the podcast where we deep dive into anything and everything musical theater from the comfort of my car. I'm Tara. I'm Stefania. And in today's episode, it's time for part two of Hamilton. I am not going away much. Just away. I am Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton. So if you just heard part one of Hamilton, which was the explanation of how the show began, what we love, now we're talking about performances. Shara is back for episode two. Hi. So we are talking about performances in this episode, specifically the three times we've now seen Hamilton. So before we go super into everything and to bring Shara into this conversation, we are going to talk about our different experiences at Hamilton. And we are going to start with our favorite moments from the show as a whole overall. Shara, we can start with you. I think it's it's actually a, a bad choice to pick as my favorite on stage <laughs> moment because it has also been um, like at the Tonys and whatever, but I just think there's nothing that matches Yorktown on stage. The Battle of Yorktown. It's just such a magical moment. I think you were mentioning before we started recording how it takes some time to build up for some people the show. And um, and I think Yorktown is just such an amazing moment where like everything comes together and you're just so committed at that point and so much has happened like kind of slowly and then it builds up and Yorktown is just everyone's in sync, everyone's on stage. It's just beautiful. I think Two things about Yorktown. It's so interesting that that's not the Act 1 finale. I know. Because yeah. it, you're so exciting. And then Lin-Manuel had to figure out a way to top it for the Act 1 finale. Because I love that Act 1 finale. But it's interesting that he chose the climax of Act 1 to be Hamilton writing. And not mm-hmm. Hamilton fighting in a battle. But also, every time, or at least the past two times I've seen Hamilton, Yorktown always gets mid-song applause. Because it's so exciting. And mm-hmm. the audience can't hold it in anymore. And they just, especially for people who are seeing it for the first time and or don't know the music, they just can't not clap in that moment. Literally last night, you're like, it is the You Ought to Know <laughs> mid-show. Right, because in the middle of You Ought to Know, people applauded too. That's what I was going to say. It sounds like the 11th hour moment mm-hmm. in Act 1. Yorktown is one of those songs that I had listened to when I was listening to Hamilton Not In Order. That was one that stood out to me. And we've always talked about how... That song is so great on the cast album, and it's also so great on stage. As Char said, it was the Tony Award performance. It is a full ensemble moment. It's a full dance moment. It's a full gun choreography moment. There's a lot happening on stage. The lighting is amazing. The climbing all over the sets. Like, everything is great in that song, and the orchestrations are high energy. The enthusiasm by everybody is just... It's really an amazing number, and I feel like we... Loved it so much before we saw it, and to have that translate on stage as well is exactly what you want from this musical. We always talk about that we have like different moments in our head of like things that we think are going to happen because we hear them a certain way on the cast recording versus seeing them on stage. And that one to me was exactly how I wanted it to be played, but seeing it just like really elevated it. We won! We won! We won! We won! We won! 
But I think that's exactly it. Like, we'll get into choreography and staging and stuff later. But that really does bring in, like, the unbelievable dancers um, and the really cool, yeah, weird gun choreography that you don't get in other shows. And it's just so in sync and so full stage that it really does do it justice on this cast recording that we've listened to and sang in the car a thousand times. Mm-hmm. Steph, your favorite moment? I would say my favorite moment is the two hitter of helpless into satisfied because you've met the girls already but it truly shows what you can do on stage by showing this moment two times from two different perspectives first from eliza's perspective and then you see the whole thing rewind and then you see it again from angelica's perspective Mm -hmm. and those two songs slap number one Staging wise, when you see the candles fly in and then fly out and then come back in again and you see them rewind or they go back in the wedding, they all happens twice. It's so, so, so exciting. And I just think that song, those songs are great together. Yeah, we obviously will have a lot to say on Satisfied and Helpless. Mm-hmm. So I think we should save that until okay. we get into songs. Um, my favorite moment from Hamilton is one that I did not think of before I saw the show, and that is, spoilers, the end when Hamilton dies. I think the staging of the final battle between Hamilton and Burr is one of the greatest things I've ever seen. The cast member who becomes the bullet, everything in slow motion, the turntables going at the right moment, that is a moment in the show that Hamilton and Burr are always rotating around each other. And that is why a turntable was put in this show because they are always in each other's storylines. So to have that be their final rotation and then he dies, I think is brilliant. And the staging of it is just so special. The way they've been setting up the bullet throughout the show, because that is not the first moment you've seen her. Mm -hmm. She's been portraying the bullet throughout the show. And then to come back in that pivotal moment and she's alone for a while and the other dancers lift her up and she's being moved across the stage towards Hamilton so slowly. It's stunning. Yeah. I remember that was your also, like, that was your reaction the first time you saw it too. Um, Because you remember you messaging me being like, oh my God, the bullet is so cool. And I was like, haven't we seen interviews with <laughs> Ariana DeBose and like we talked about how the mm-hmm. bullet, and I think you would like, really blinded yourself to go into it without really knowing because I think I would like seen her like being lifted up so it's so cool that like you were able to have that on stage and it is such an amazing moment yeah I also think that like again the first time I saw it I was in the front row so seeing that all play out so close in front of you is just like overwhelming and that's a moment that I feel like translates in every single production. It's always that powerful and that emotional and that strong. So because of that moment of the bullet not being on the cast recording, it made me think of other moments that we've listened to on the cast recording, but that hit differently than we thought they would on stage. Reynolds pamphlet live is amazing. The Reynolds pamphlet. Have you read this? Alexander Hamilton, affair. Seeing it for the third time yesterday, you watch different people. I know you were focused a lot I was on watching, King George. <laughs> I was watching the King because he's chilling on the balcony. Normally when he sings his songs, he sings them when he leaves. But after 
I know him. He sits in the corner and try and watches America try to govern itself. And he hangs out through the whole Reynolds Hamlet on that balcony and then comes across the front stage. And you don't hear him at all in the cast recording, so it's mm-hmm. not something you would know until you saw it happen. Yeah. And he really milks those moments. Yes. <laughs> a moment that I love from Reynolds pamphlet, and it's something I said to you yesterday, was there are so many papers on stage <laughs> and they just like keep flying. You're like, where are they getting these all from? And I'm just like mind blown at how many papers and how are do they, flying. And how do they clean it up so fast? They yeah, are that's gone. True. I They're know. magic. Maybe they have like sticky on their shoes <laughs> and just like bring it with them. Yeah, but that song is super fun on stage. Um, something else with Reynolds' pamphlet that is the most iconic moment of the song is obviously when Angelica enters and Hamilton thinks that she's there for him because they have this flirty re- relationship. But when she says, I'm not here for you, and then goes into her whole, like, Scholar Sisters theme of talking about Eliza, it's just, that's the first, like, oh, feminist empowerment moment in Act 2, and I love it. There is nothing more satisfying, excuse me, than, <laughs> than Angelica coming and dressing Hamilton down. Yeah in that moment and just putting him in his place. Mm-hmm. Angelica, thank God someone who understands what I'm struggling here to do. I'm not here for you. I know my sister like I know my own mind. You will never find anyone as trusting or as kind. I love my sister more than anything in this life. I will choose her happiness over mine every time. Put what we had aside. I'm standing at her side. You can never be Something else that I noticed last night, and we've also noticed in Buffalo, I think I was just overwhelmed in New York, so it didn't stand out for me as much as it did the last two times. Washington on your side on stage Mm. is so good, and it's specifically for me in the moment when it's Burr and Jefferson and Madison, and they are walking across the stage in their three lineups. Like diagonally? Yes. And the entire ensemble is following them. And then it goes into the whole Southern mother effing Democratic <laughs> Republicans and they just lose their minds and they're like jumping around the entire stage. It's such a strong performance by those three characters. I think it hits so much better on stage than it does on the cast album. The first time I saw Hamilton in London, I left thinking, wow, Washington on your side slays on stage. I'm in the cabinet. I am complicit in watching him grabbing and power and kissing him. Washington isn't going to listen to discipline dissidents. This is the difference. This kid is out. Oh, this immigrant isn't somebody we chose. Oh, this immigrant's keeping us all on our toes. Oh. Truly a skip on the cast recording, but seeing it and that choreography, and it hits at the right moment in the show where mm-hmm. everything's about to blow up. And I thought it was so, so strong. And that's the first thing I thought. I've always loved that song, but I think I also just love, like, the angst and revenge that they have. You just feel it. So all the cabinet battles and Washington on your side, all those songs that you guys never really liked. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and it comes out a lot better on stage when you can see their angst. I literally think it's night and day. I Same with cabinet battle. Always has been a skip for me. But again, because that's not the type of music that I'm interested in, so... I never cared for it. But watching a rap battle about the Confederation on stage is something that you'll never see ever again in anything else. Ladies and gentlemen, you could have been anywhere in the world tonight, but you're here with us in New York City. Are you ready for a cabinet meeting? It's something that works so well on stage because Washington comes and addresses the audience and says, are you ready for a cabinet meeting? And so you are the delegates, Mm -hmm. you are deciding. 
and putting a, the framing this probably was a somewhat civilized discussion in a courtroom as this rap battle that we're watching and taunting and cheering for mm -hmm. really works on stage. And for me, it doesn't work as well in the cast recording. But it is interesting, after I saw it, I didn't go and listen to the cabinet battles, but I do go and listen to Watching on Your Side. I agree after with that. It that way. Yeah, I also think it's interesting with cabinet battles in general, the way that it's staged there seems to almost relate to how cabinet meetings happen now. If you watch anything that's online, I know in Canada specifically, they put a lot of their meetings, it's either on the news or anything like that. You can watch it live. <laughs> yeah, and same with in London, like their meetings are insane and with everything that's happening in the States. So to actually see like people stand up and yell at each other, you're like, oh, nothing's changed. <laughs> it's no, all the same. But that's why I love it because it's like, if you listen to the words, technically it's civilized, the sarcasm underneath, is so powerful and I love it. I don't know that it's civilized. I'm gonna it's... show you where my shoe fits. <laughs> hey, turn around, bend over, I'll show you where my shoe fits. Excuse me. Madison, Jefferson, take a walk. Hamilton, take a walk. We're gonna reconvene after a brief recess. Hamilton, sir, a word. We begin civilized. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Quickly unravels. I like in the second one where what does Jefferson say? He says something like, who came to our help? And Madison's like, uh, France? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Jefferson, the Jefferson-Madison relationship in Watchtown on Your Side, the cabinet battles is great. And I've never seen it not played well. Madison is always just there to hype Jefferson up. Yeah. He's like his He's, hype man. Yeah. <laughs> Which also is so good on stage. Yeah. It does really work. He just always follows behind him, something you don't get on the cast recording. Mm -hmm. Something on the cast recording, and this... Not to trash Lynn and Miranda, who trash who, <laughs> who gave us the gift of Hamilton, but I don't know if his voice is always great. So Hurricane on the cast recording is a skip. In the eye of a hurricane, there is quiet for just a moment. A yellow sky. However, on stage with someone else singing it and seeing the staging that Annie Blankenbuehler has put together where they're recreating a hurricane, there's ensemble members on the rafters or whatever and then down and they're passing furniture to each other to make it seem like it's flying around in a hurricane mm -hmm. and he's in the eye of the storm trying to figure out what to do next. And it's a great character moment for him. And I've always loved it so much on stage. Yeah, I remember talking to my friend about Hamilton. He had won the lottery, never listened to anything, and then saw the show for the first time. And when I was asking him what he thought, he was telling me about specific moments. And Hurricane was one of those moments. And me was like, Hurricane? <laughs> Hurricane is a standout moment from you? Like, have you heard the cast recording? Obviously he hadn't. So we actually saw the same Hamilton. Uh, Javon McFerrin, I'll shout him out now, he was my Hamilton in New York. His voice is stellar and he is just such a strong presence on stage. So hearing him sing Hurricane, a song that I had always hated, made me want to listen to it, but I don't want to listen to it with his <laughs> voice. So I still skip it. Even last night, Joseph Morales, our Hamilton, he did a great job with Hurricane. Joseph Morales' voice, we'll talk about that later, but yeah. I, he's an interesting Hamilton. Yes, and I do agree with you. The way that it's staged is honestly stunning. And the lighting in that moment, too, that changes when they talk about in the eye of the hurricane, it's yellow and then it fades into blue. It's just great. The other Lynn singing moment on the cast recording. Dear Theodosa. <laughs> no, that's like a, you can't listen to that. Oh. <laughs> Lynn, we owe you, Hamilton. You've done so much for us, but oh my God. Yeah. Especially contrasting 
the gift of Leslie Odom Jr., who sounds yes. so great on that song. You literally just want to hear those parts <laughs> and then skip the rest of it. Well, thinking of the Hamilton we saw in Buffalo, Austin Scott Love. has such a fantastic voice. Yeah. Uh, he played it on the Angelica tour, which we saw, and then he went and did it on Broadway, and now he's in Girl from the North Country. His voice is fabulous, and so him singing Dear Theodosia is like beautiful when you get the emotion of that song that I don't get from Lynn. That's almost a moment that like is different from us recording the <laughs> yes, stage. It's true. And purely <laughs> because, no reason, yeah, sorry. not because of the staging, but just purely because you're like, oh, the song is actually pretty. Yeah, there's, I have joked about this since we heard that the pro shot is coming out in October, but Lynn will be the worst part of the original cast. <laughs> like, I really do believe that. Again, we love you, Lynn. We just don't love your voice. And that's an and anything. I'm not a fan of his voice in most of what he's done. Mary Poppins? <laughs> he was fine in Mary Poppins. I just, uh, I think... talk sings. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Talk singing but and rapping versus singing, singing, which is what he's doing true. in Theodosia and her. Yeah, thing. like, Cabinet Battles, he, I actually don't mind. Yes, when he's rapping, it's fine. I don't really love the tone of his speaking voice. Yeah, so it's a the weird translation cadence. into singing just, like, isn't it for me. This is not a yeah, no, hate no. podcast. Um... <laughs> So before we get off of this, the last moment that I just want to touch on for translating better on stage for me, I think is in Right Hand Man. It's a powerful song on the cast recording, but there is nothing like Burr addressing the audience saying like, George Washington is here. And then it's just spotlight on him pulling out the sword. It's amazing. And it really gets you hyped up for the rest of the show because it's so early. There are some burns that happen that the audience really gets behind yeah. where Washington tells Burr to shut the door on his way out. Yes. The audience is always like, ooh. ooh. <laughs> That's great. It's yeah. so fun. Um, something, especially with that song that my dad was saying, and he saw Hamilton for the first time last night. Also, he loves all the Aaron Burr, sir. And that <laughs> happens a lot in that song, especially when Hamilton and Burr are meeting Washington. I love all the internal rhymes that Lynn puts in. So mm-hmm. Aaron Burr, sir, or something in Skylar Sisters, like history is happening in Manhattan and yes. we just happen. I it's think those hit. are, yeah the, yeah, the hit within the lines and not just at the end of every line. Yeah. So to contrast what we were just talking about, let's talk about moments that hit on the cast album and on stage. They're powerful in both settings. For me, I think it's nonstop. I agree. <laughs> nonstop is one you listen to in the car and you just like get excited. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's such a fantastic song and it's in the tradition of, let's say, a Les Mis where they're pulling all the themes together. Eliza singing That Would Be Enough, Angelica singing Satisfied, uh, some Yorktown is in there, history some right hand history has his eyes on you. It's all coming together as wait Hamilton. Wait, you're right. Hamilton is trying to figure out where to go from here. They've won independence for their country. Now, what is next? Mm-hmm. And he's trying to balance all those things. And that asks you the question of Act Two: Is where do we go from here? Alexander, I have to leave. Alexander. Look around, look around at how lucky we are to be alive right now. They are asking me to leave. Look around, isn't this enough? He will never be satisfied. He will never be satisfied. Satisfied. History has George Washington is on the like platform on the side and then they start wheeling it out. I forgot that happens and it's like, oh! 
He's coming. Yeah, also in Hamilton's writing, and they bring out that slab of wood <laughs> to just, like, like angle so that he can write. Why do you write? Like, it's coming out Yeah. Um, I will say a shout-out to, again, Joseph Morales, because he was doing some really funny things in nonstop. Um, specifically, the I was chosen for the Constitutional Convention. He did, like, a superstar. <laughs> um, it was really funny. And he was, like, super into that song. I mean, it's a full cast moment. We've talked about it extensively on our Act 1 finales episode as well. It is such a great Act 1 finale, and as we said earlier, you would think that Yorktown is the song to go there, but to think that there's another song that can one-up that and it's successful is kind of crazy, and Nonstop is definitely one of those songs. My song, that's exactly the same. Like, I don't know how you can say anything but my shot, just because that is the song that you show to someone who, like, has never seen Hamilton, knows nothing about. If you want to show one song, it's my shot. And the energy, like, you can, like, have the best time in your car singing to it, but then also on stage, um, just, like, when they're in that pub, they're taking shots every time they say a shot, and the energy of those four guys is just, like, unmatched with anything else when you think about how the other three guys are supposed to be like behind the times like their raps are slower and more like primitive time and then like the idea that like Hamilton comes in with like this new age rap and how like the music musically it's represented differently too Mm -hmm. and then just on stage it's so awesome yeah I also love Burr in that song because he's like guys really (laughs) like why are we doing this you want the worst but (laughs) (laughs) exactly Um, It's also the first introduction to Lafayette, Hercules Mulligan, John Lawrence, and what becomes, I mean, Burr's in the song too, that five-some, right? Like, those five people are so important on stage in Act 1 and in Act 2 as different characters, but it's really a great introduction because, I mean, I love the line when they're talking about your pants look hot and Mulligan just like (laughs) snaps his leg down and like shows off his pants. It's just like very in-your-face. They're bros. They're bros. And it's I, his crew. Yeah. And then I also love, in my shot, the whole monologue that begins Hamilton talking about death. And then obviously the past patiently is the most iconic. I feel like it's used everywhere. Every time I see a news story about Hamilton, they're literally playing that clip. Past patiently yeah. waiting. Yeah. Smashing everything. <laughs> yeah. I'm past patiently waiting. I'm passionately smashing every expectation, every action an act of creation. I'm laughing in the face of casualties and sorrow. For the first time I'm thinking past tomorrow. When I am not pulling away my shot. I am not pulling away my shot. Hey, yo, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not pulling away my I also love the staging of it because like they have to do such a wide range of ages in this in the show like starting from like I was 19 and then all of a sudden like he's wearing glasses in the second act and you're like oh he's fine <laughs> he's old now mm-hmm. um but like they do such a good job in the first uh or like a sec- second and third song when they really let you know that like hey, we're in university right now. Mm -hmm. We're like, they're bros. They're drinking beer in a pub. Like, I think that they do such a good job at making that known. Yeah, the only thing I'll say about my shot versus cast album versus seeing it on stage, it's slower on stage. It is easier to understand what everybody is saying. I also think, like, in general, anybody that has not seen Hamilton and has only listened to the cast album, it is fast. Don't get me wrong, it is fast. But it is a lot slower than you would expect. I was surprised the first time we saw it. Last night, we were concerned that he wasn't gonna stay on time because he was going so slow. That's his, that's also him though. That was the way he was rapping it or singing it. He was like just half a beat behind, like a very chill Hamilton. Mm -hmm. But it was 
a moment when it first started, like, oh my god, is the orchestra gonna have to keep up with him? Like, what is going on here? So I, I will say it is slower, and I do think it is easier for people to understand if you've never listened to it, and that is the first time we hear them speed rap, so it flows like that throughout the rest of the show. Um, a moment for me that hits just as great on stage as it does on the cast album, Rumor It Happens. I love the way that Leslie Odom Jr. sings it. I love the staging of that song so much. It's just Burr feeling left out and telling you that he's super upset about it. And we've now seen three different Burrs and all of them seem to play that song the same way that they just, again, feel that they need to be in that room where it happens. And I love the end of the song when Burr jumps on the table and the ensemble is dancing around him. We love the like thriller choreography <laughs> in that moment. I think it's like one of the best endings to a song is the click boom and the lights follow Burr as he has his hands up to the ceiling and down to the stage. So it's just a great song. I love Rumor It Happens. That, to me, is Burr's I Want song. The show is about both of them trying to achieve their goals, and Hamilton gets his I Want song in my shot right at the beginning of the show, and that's true to his character because he's moving so quickly, whereas Burr's first song he gets to sing is Wait For It, and that's where your I Want song would normally go, but he is always holding back. He's not moving forward. So he says, wait for me to tell you what I want. But in act two, when he's being left behind, he's being left out of that meeting. That's when he gets to sing his I want song. He's like, I want to be in the room where it happens. And I think making us, you know, wait for that payoff of him explaining to us what he wants and what he's looking for translates to the rest of the show because then he sees what I've been doing hasn't been successful. So mm -hmm. he, later when he sees Hamilton, he's like, I learned that from you. I learned to fight for what I want from you. And even at the end, right to the end, spoilers, when he shoots Hamilton, he doesn't throw away a shot because he's learned from Hamilton and that ended up being Hamilton's demise. I think just the way it's crafted is so masterful. Yeah. I also love the three of them, Madison, Jefferson, and Hamilton making fun of him during that <laughs> song when he says to them, like, basically what's going on and they, like, look at him and then keep walking. It's just great. It's also, like, so transferable. Like, you can imagine today, like, whether it's in Congress or, like, a friend group or at work, like, you can imagine someone doing that and, like, shoving in your face and, like, walking <laughs> away. They talk about a quid pro quo. Which is so funny because someone asked me at work if that was added. And I was like, no, that was always in there. But it just, like, hits more now because this stuff is literally happening right now. Mm -hmm. So it's crazy. For me, too, another moment that I think always hits the same as it does on the cast recording, and I think that that is due to the way that it's sung on the cast recording. All of the King George moments, yes, the acting around it is funny on stage and something that I think every person that steps into that character does whatever they want with, but those songs always hit. And those are the first songs I think that I really loved. Like we said in the first album, probably because I listened to them back to back because my CD was out of order. <laughs> and we talk about the fact that Jonathan Groff was nominated for a Tony, the fact that in London, the Olivier was one for that character. So it's crazy that someone that's on stage for that little amount of time <laughs> is getting such high recognition, but it really is a standout. And from what I've been reading of the Toronto reviews, it's been 
the best moment for everybody. That was the thing that my mom uh, mentioned to me the first thing she said after we saw it the first time. Um, she was like, that king was hilarious. And I was like, well, compared to Groff, like, he was fine. <laughs> but, yeah, like, the king is something people remember. The first time the king comes out, I think if you're on the fence about it at that point, the king pulls you over. Yeah, he that's is, what my brother said. Uh, it was interesting to ask him, what was the moment that turned you in it? He said the king. And I think it's where you understand tonally what they're doing with the show because they get to be so comedic, even certain times playing with like lighting cues Mm -hmm. on things in a way that they don't do the rest of the show. They're a little more classy, if you will, whereas the king, they go full comedy with him. And I think it's a good choice. And it's interesting to see, you know, I've seen Hamilton once in Canada, once in England and once in the US and to see the different ways the kings land in different places. It's also nice because it's kind of like a break. Like, the show is fast, and you really have to be, like, on the edge of your seat, like, keeping up with everything. And you kind of get, like, the king walks out very slowly, and you're like, okay, I have to, like, think about what I saw. And then it's a slower song. Like, maybe that's why it's one of some of our favorites at the beginning, because we actually, like, understood every word the first time we listened to it, unlike a lot of the other songs. Um, so it's kind of like a break with from this really, really fast-paced storyline. Honestly, one of the highlights of both the cast recording and seeing it on stage is Wait For It. Mm-hmm. We've talked about Burr. Les Odom Jr.'s voice is so stunning, and like how smooth it is works really well for the characterization of Burr. But Wait For It is important as a character moment, but also just such a great song. a burr that's not as smooth as Leslie Adams Jr. Because the idea is that like he he's so sure of himself. He's like, no, no, I'm good. I'm going to wait. And I, it'd be really interesting to see um, like uh, if the tone would change if he wasn't so sure of himself. Because like that's the idea that at the end he's like, oh, wait, was I better off on my own or was I better off with Hamilton? And to see like a different characterization I think would be so interesting. I feel like I've seen a different characterization of every burr. We talk about always the final line in The World Was Wide Enough, not the final line, but when he talks about making an orphan of his daughter. And I've seen it twice played upset and once angry. Um, the Aaron Burr from Toronto, Jared Dixon, was upset when he sang it. I am going to shout out again Nick Walker, who was my Aaron Burr. Also, congratulations, because he just got cast in Ain't Too Proud since we recorded last week. So that's very exciting. But he is the best Burr that I saw. And every performance that I see after that, I compare it and it's never as good, which is, I'm sure people can say that like that's a bad thing. But when you see someone that is just so amazing in a role, it's really just so far above everybody else. And I like seeing different characterizations of it. I think Jared Dixon was not as confident as other birds that I've seen, a little more timid, and his characterization was a little more always following behind Hamilton instead of confident. I've always said that I think that Burr is a more important character than Hamilton. As we know, he narrates the entire show. So when you have someone that is not that much of a stage presence, it 
diminishes, I think, what the character was written to be. Last night I saw in the staging of Wait For It, because it was the third time, very fortunate to have seen it for three times, but I was able to watch ensemble and staging moments, not focus always on the person singing or what they, they're guiding your eyes towards, but to other little Easter eggs that are putting in for you. And during Wait For It, I guess I noticed for the first time the ensemble around the stage some of them are on the scaffolding around and some of them are surrounding Burr. And the way they're like reaching for him and pulling out from him, like in time with the lighting, mm-hmm. was like really, really beautiful. Maybe this is the time to talk about Andy Blankenbuehler's choreography because I just love it so much. Okay. I It is so simplistic. They're never coming on stage and doing a full choreographed dance number. Everything is in service of the words and telling the story. Every movement ties to the words that the characters are saying and sometimes they'll just come in and do a count of eight and then leave the stage again Mm -hmm. they don't overuse the dancers they really are just to fill out the moments and i think it's so 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 successful nothing is super intense dancing in this show but it is difficult because it is very specific i don't know what else to say except that i love it so much and i think it's it's interesting it's not something i've seen before very much in musical theater the very muted like small movements used to tell the big story and having them all done in unison or just a few people at a time telling it is really good i think what also helps with that and this is probably a collaborative thing with andy and the costume designers as well as direction is every ensemble member is wearing the same thing basically they're Mm -hmm. all in white and sometimes they put a dress on or they put a jacket on or they wear a hat but it really doesn't make you look at one person specifically. You Hamilton is an ensemble show. There is not, other than your leading players, obviously, but when you see shows and there's always that standout ensemble member, I don't feel that way with Hamilton all the time. I mean, the bullet I'm sure you could say is a standout ensemble member just because she is that character that is used in front of everybody else. Just sometimes. in those moments, though. Yeah, but when they're all together, it's a collaborative dance moment, and I think that that's a really smart thing to do. Also something that we noticed again after seeing it for the third time is how much they hang off the set and <laughs> jump down on a specific beat. It's something that like I've seen them hang off before but you don't notice that they're actually hitting every mark until you take your eyes off the people in front and watch everybody around. I think it's so powerful because until like you sent us that stuff you sent us that video of uh, the choreography like kind of broken down you almost don't think of it even as dancing and that's what's so cool is it's unlike any other musical theater show because they're not doing some big elaborate number which obviously has its place and it's really cool in that right but in this show there it's really I would define it more as like movement than dancing because they're just doing like little tweaks and but just in unison or with the beat or on an offbeat or whatever and it's like just so powerful because it's not a big show it's just like behind and there and always present like they're always on stage i agree with that for the entire show but i disagree that there's not a big number i think yorktown is a huge dance Mm -hmm. choreograph number with the guns and And that is the place for it you want that number to feel big as well as rumor it happens there's that moment when the ensemble does that big dance and in non-stop there when they're doing things at the end and i mean you could argue that hurricane too because the ensemble is moving everything with their bodies all over the furniture so i do think that yes there are like simplistic moments that happen in the back but to do a choreographed gun dance is not something that should be no for sure it's just more these are not casey nicola dance numbers that's I guess, the epitome of... That's exactly what I was picturing. I was picturing the prom. Yeah, it's so different. And that works perfectly for the prom. But the way 
in Hamilton that those big dance numbers are used so sparingly. And even the way they're used, it's not big jazz numbers. It's very contemporary movement, which goes with the contemporary music, the way that they're holding the guns. And sometimes they're just miming the holding the guns. Mm -hmm. And it suggests that they're there, but they're not always there there for them. Yeah, I would argue that I would never compare these two shows. No, of course not. So I think that the choreography goes with the notion of Hamilton is a show that when it jumped into the theater scene five years ago, broke the boundaries of conventional musical theater. So they had to break the boundaries of the conventional musical theater style of dance. And they do it well. The spectrum of musical theater dance maybe runs Hamilton or not the same, but somewhat similar like this season's West Side Story. I was going to say, yeah all the way to the other side to the prom or a Moulin Rouge. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny because Moulin Rouge and Hamilton, I think there's a lot of overlap in those ensembles Mm -hmm. because just because it's more simple movement does not mean it's not very difficult and does not mean that there's not very trained dancers in that ensemble. There are such fantastic dancers that were in both of those ensembles and using completely different skill sets that they learned growing up, learned dancing. And I love to see them being able to flex different muscles in different shows. I also think it's amazing for a choreographer, as we've said in previous episodes, like he just worked on the new tour of Cats. Like that style is very different to Hamilton. So he really gets to just like play around and have fun with whatever show that he is a part of. He is very responsive to the music, thinking about he did In the Heights. He also did Bring It On. He did Hamilton. He did Bandstand, you know, the new Cats production, he had the Cats movie as well. Just thinking about all of those things have such, such different styles. And they're all in service of the story you're trying to tell, which I think is what is makes the choreography so great. Mm-hmm. I think now that we're talking about him, it's important to say that just as the five characters on stage, the five leading men are such a collaborative team, there's also five leading men off stage for lack of a better term, that are a collaborative team. Lin-Manuel Miranda, Tommy Kale, Annie Blankenbuehler, David Corns, and Alexander Lacklemore. Those five guys, without all of them working as a team, I don't think Hamilton would be as it is. I know that if you talk to people that don't know Hamilton or don't know, go into looking at all of the people that are involved would just think that this is Lin-Manuel Miranda's show. It's not. Yes, he gave us everything, but without everybody else that worked on it with him, again, we wouldn't have the show that we have. So I think this is the perfect moment to talk about staging and direction. Tommy Kale is a genius, as we know. Just to talk about some staging moments that I think are so amazing. And I know that this was a collab with Lynn as well as David Corns, obviously, because he built the set. Let's talk about the turntables. To have a storyline that is legitimately about two characters that are always rotating throughout each other's life, to build a turntable to actually show that is so smart and such an amazing use of material and stage. And I think it Hamilton really showed other shows what turntables can do. I always say that a turntable is another character in a show. I've, say, I've said this with Come From Away. I've said this with Town. The set in general can add or detract from a show mm-hmm. and the turntable really adds to the movement of the show because the characters in the show are always moving. Yeah, so this is a turntable. There are two turntables that there's a big ring and then there's an inner ring. For anybody that has not seen Hamilton or has never seen a turntable, um, we talked about 
the amazing use of turntables in Satisfied and in Helpless. So I feel like we should start there. The transition from Helpless to Satisfied, we see the turntable going in one direction, but when it's rewinding, the turntable goes back in the other direction and it tells the audience that we're going back in time. It's just so dramatic. Like it's the best way I think to explain to the audience what's going on because musically, if you're listening to the cast recording, you really don't understand. They do such a good job with the direction to like let the audience know what's going on and fill them in. My brother was saying that he didn't realize he had heard the song satisfied before, but he didn't realize that it legitimately rewinds. So seeing rewind. the actual <laughs> rewind is insane. The visual of it is so important. And again, the choreography mixed with that of like the dancers rewind winding type thing when their movement is so cool too for me the turntable moment that i always picture is in non-stop where angelica is leaving and her and hamilton are on separate turntables and she's going one direction and he's going the other direction they're moving away from each other she's like reaching back to him that's the perfect use of these two turntables moving in opposite directions also in non-stop with eliza and <clears throat> angelica and she's moving on that same turntable as well it's amazing in that song specifically because eliza is starting to sing and she's basically having a conversation with nobody and then she comes right in front of him and i always wonder what if the turntable stops <laughs> i would be so interested to see the hamilton no fly with like the no fly <laughs> hamilton the no turntable hamilton yeah what do they do it's not the same show. No, it's completely different. I sh there's got to be a contingency plan. Except that I also like that they don't overuse it, if that makes sense. Like, there are certain songs, like the ones we've just mentioned, that, like, hit, and it's awesome, and it's such a good use of it. But then when I, like, picture the show in my mind, I'm not picturing them in constant motion in a circle type thing. Like, there's moments when they use it, and there's moments where it's, like, really really slow and you barely notice that it's moving um but it's an appropriate use that like really points out the timing and the changes and when people are moving in and out of each other's lives for me the turntables are a hamilton thing yeah they're used when to show hamilton that he can't sit still that he can't stop moving that he's always moving around each other he's always trying to move to the next thing burr is such a stationary character and so even if the turntables are moving they're moving around him yeah. they're not moving him along except for when he's in relation to hamilton it's mm -hmm. always conveying hamilton's thoughts hamilton's movement hamilton's you know writing like he's running out of time because he can't mm -hmm. stop going he can't stand still yeah i also like with the turntables that they actually use it to help the ensemble members walk and move. I'm thinking specifically in Skylar Sisters, when Burr comes out to do the very beginning, he's walking on that turntable because mm -hmm. he's about to meet these three girls. We so, gotta go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> gotta get the job done. <laughs> so it's one of those things that it's used, I think, more than you think it's used because I do think there is almost a constant movement throughout the entire show. Sometimes it goes very slow. Yeah. That's my point. That's what's so interesting is like it changes. It's not telling the same thing for different characters. Maybe for Hamilton's really fast. Mm -hmm. For Burr, it's moving everyone else but him. But I agree, like for different characters, it represents different timing, different movement. I think it's so cool. Mm -hmm. It also makes me wonder when you're talking about like the five guys behind the stage, what order is it in? Like what at what point do you have to like speed up or slow down music so that the turntable can go at the right space so that Burr can get to the right side, so like the choreograph. I think that that's a true collab with David Corns for sure because he built mm -hmm. the turntables. And I think it personally. has to be, yeah, him personally. <laughs> no, but he, if you watch, there's so many videos and I highly recommend to watch the behind the scenes videos of Hamilton, but David Corns presented the idea of a turntable by just sketches. And he had all, I think it was like six different sketches in his mind of like what work the best so I feel like they probably checked in with him but I also feel like 
he worked a lot with Lack to get the music to hit properly with how things are spinning. Because I just think of Hurricane, like that's a slow-mo turntable mm-hmm. spin. Mm-hmm. It goes very slowly. And same with the very end. It's very slow. And I think that the speed, as we've said, makes certain moments more powerful. Just as much as I think that the turntables are a character in the show, I am also one to say that lighting has its own characterization in certain shows. So a shout out to the lighting design in the show. Howell Binkley worked on Hamilton. And as you said, Steph, about lighting playing two comedic moments in a King George situation, I also think about the lighting moment being comedic right after Adam's administration when Hamilton (laughs) is yelling. It's just all red light when he's swearing. But my favorite lighting moment in the show is one that I mentioned earlier. It's when Burr sings from where it happens and we get the click boom light. Seeing it live, you're like, wow, that is someone that is really doing their job and hitting everything perfectly on time. And it's such a powerful moment and there's emotional impact on it. I also think the very end, which we said last night, that that end orchestration should be on the cast album. I want to jam to it. But there's also a moment there that the show is just lit house lights and then right as the orchestrations end, it's the click boom again and it turns red. So I just love that little lighting moment. I think it's great. The difference between like the lighting in like Skylar Sisters where it's like so positive and then the world is wide enough where it's like dark and you know that this is the end. The lighting like really, really sets the tone for you. Mm -hmm. Especially just talking on dark lighting, burn. The stage is pretty dark, and then the really only light that's there is that fire. So that's also a really smart thing to do. But that's why I say that, like, in this show specifically, the lights are a character. And we forget about these things when we hear about the people that make the shows. So just as a, like, overall, everyone that is working behind the scenes, there are so many people that are attached to any show. And I feel like Hamilton is a big one because... I mean, there's three tour casts going around right now. There's a sit-down in San Francisco, New York, West End. They're going to LA. They're going to Australia in March of 2021. So there's a lot of people that are working on this production to make it everything that it is. So I just want to, like, shout out in general that, yes, we have these amazing actors. Yes, we have amazing director and book writer and lyricist and everything. But the people behind the scenes are working just as hard and they deserve just as much recognition. To think about how many different moving pieces there are and that they all have to coordinate and make it all make sense together and compromise and even every single tiny detail that they put in, it's crazy to think that it all came together into this show. Yeah, and when you're having this conversation after, we've just talked about how the dancers jump from the sets and, like, hit their mark at the same time. Like, those lighting cues have to, like, change and adjust to exactly what's going on that particular night, and there's someone behind it every single night. Shout out to a stage manager. Cue to cue for Hamilton. <laughs> crazy, because they're controlling that turntable, I'm sure, too, going in opposite directions, because it changes directions all the time. Wow. Something that's so interesting about Burns, because we were just talking about it, is the idea of Eliza's narrative because she says she's like I'm taking myself out of the narrative and I think a huge through line of Hamilton is the telling the story it comes back over and over and over again you have no control who lives who dies your who tells your story and it's crazy I doubt Hamilton would have thought that someone like Lin-Manuel Miranda would be the one who's created this legacy for Alexander Hamilton. But it's something that I think is so important and is maybe one of the thesis statements of Hamilton, because that's what you end with, with Eliza telling Hamilton's story and explain how she told that story. But it's also something that Hamilton was so 
obsessed over the way he wrote the Reynolds pamphlet to try and control the narrative to get out in front of something that could have hurt him for being president and ended up screwing everything up for himself. Or when you talk about something like say no to this, where Hamilton's always saying she said before she says anything. So you're knowing that this is all from Hamilton's perspective. He's an unreliable narrator in the situation that you know that it's not, we don't know if this is historically accurate, but this is one man's telling of what happened here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a moment, I can't remember what song anymore, but Hamilton and Burr are talking about how someone got a street named after them and their the Mercer legacy is complete. All they have to do is die. (laughs) All they have to do is die. And that they're so obsessed with their legacy and they're so obsessed with how history will remember them. And it reminds me of, especially the finale, Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story, reminds me of a line in the finale of In the Heights where Usnavi says, I ain't going back because I'm telling your story. And I'm like, oh, Lin-Manuel has been obsessed with the idea of telling stories and making stories important since then, probably since even before then, but it's a through line in his work. And I just think it's so interesting the way that he works the narrative and works what history we have available to us to fill this plot line and kind of explain through it, oh, this maybe isn't accurate, or maybe this is one person's perspective. I think it's so interesting. Just to jump off your point about Eliza, there is no Hamilton without her. For sure. And I think that that's something that we learn as we see the production and see different productions of it that there's a feminist angle that weaves its way throughout the entire show. Hamilton has a lot of trust in Angelica too. So he looks to her for advice. He writes to her telling her about what's happening at that at this stage in his career. And to have such a male heavy cast and to have your show finish with your female lead is so smart. And I didn't notice until yesterday that in Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story, when Eliza is talking about the orphanage and then when Hamilton comes out, she steps back and they have this moment together. He pushes her forward to finish that storyline for him. So it's also something interesting because, you know, Eliza says in the song about the orphanage specifically, that orphanage is still open today. These are women that were not talked about obviously way back then and not talked about before this musical came out. There are people that are now searching Eliza Hamilton and and Angelica Schuyler, not so much Peggy, but <laughs> hey, <laughs> Peggy was very important. Yeah, but these are these are women that were not Google searched before and now they definitely are. And I think that is also just a testament of like who he put in his original cast because you had such a strong Angelica with mm-hmm. Renee Lee Goldsberry and such a strong Eliza with Philippa Sue. So to have those two women be your representation for these characters five years ago is the reason I think that people are now interested in the female perspective. There are great roles for women in this show. It is a show about men and all their character moments are definitely in relation to the men in this show. But I do think there are fantastic roles for women to be playing, specifically Angelica, she gets to rap, she gets to sing, she gets to put Hamilton in his place. And Eliza is something that I think on the cast recording or the original cast, it Philippa Sue made it look so easy. And as we've seen multiple casts, it is not easy at all to yeah. sing those songs. I think the question is why is Eliza a difficult character? And it, I think in the first act, it's just a hard vocally role to play. We've seen three different Elizas. There's only been one that I've liked. (laughs) On Broadway, I saw Lexi Lawson play Eliza. I also randomly saw her play Mimi in Toronto in Rent. And her voice is 
so beautiful and she played Eliza with a sweetness almost innocent but then when everything switches in act two she was really aggressive towards Hamilton and I haven't seen anyone able to I'm gonna use the word compete because I also think that this show as we've said is an endurance beast so I think it is in that first act that it is harder for the Elizas to compete with the rest of the characters and maybe keep up I've seen three different Elizas now, and every time they sing Helpless, I'm always stressed. I never <laughs> I never feel like they're nailing it. Mm-hmm. And it's tough because that's the first time you really get to hear Eliza sing. She sings the Skylar Sisters before, but Helpless is her first song. And it's always made me stressed. And then the rest of the songs that Eliza sings always go better for whoever I've seen. Every like every single time. This is a pattern. And it's just I guess it surprised me how deceptively difficult Helpless is as a song to sing. I always find it interesting, you know, she was nominated for Tony, but Rochelle Angot, who originated in the West End, was not nominated for Olivier. So it's easy to kind of put Eliza to the side, but Philippa Sue, like, didn't let them. Yeah, I also think something that we don't realize, that whole track is very high. Mm-hmm. Eliza is singing at the top of her register almost the entire show, and it's not head voice, it's belting. So mm-hmm. you hear that in Helpless, you hear that with those riffs when she's trying to hit things. Like you've said, burn always seems to hit, but I also think that that, the women that are it's auditioning- lower, burn is lower. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the women that are probably auditioning for Eliza are probably learning how to rap some of them for the first time. The beatboxing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, but you- to me, if you're going to compare an audition of Angelica and Eliza, you need to rap for Angelica. You don't need to do that for Eliza because I don't think Eliza necessarily raps. She just sings fast in the first act. But if I'm auditioning for that character, I would perform more of a song that's like Burn because that is the number that is the standout for that character. Her emotional climax. And it should be. So I just think that that's the style of singing that's probably more comfortable to the women that are in these roles. You, you The notion of Eliza being a perfect character and thinking that she needs to be a perfect singer, I feel like is a perception that was put in our heads because of Philippa Sue on the cast recording. But let's not forget that she was cast for this role. Those songs are built around her voice, for sure. So I think that in comparison, which it's so difficult to compare, obviously, different voices in the same songs, but she is at the top for everybody because her voice fits perfectly in how it was meant to be written. A character that I do think that translates in every production that I've seen is Angelica. Last night we saw an understudy, it made no difference. She was super strong. And in Buffalo, we also saw a strong Angelica. And to contradict myself, 
I saw Mandy Gonzalez on Broadway. Now, I do think if she played Angelica maybe 10 years ago, then I would have a different thing to say about this, but I think that she's just been in the industry for a long time and her voice is not as strong as it used to be. Her acting was great, but there are moments in Satisfied when there are crazy riffs that are on the cast album that you're expecting, and when they don't come, you're disappointed, and that's how I felt seeing it on Broadway. Other than that, I feel like Angelica is a character that everyone sort of puts the same spin on. And I do love that with a song specifically like Satisfied, because those riffs were created in the original, that you can do your own and have your own fun with it. last night the end was like an octave higher than it should have been and it was great and amazing so I love that but yeah that's like to me like an alphabet when you see it one time you're like yeah like you hit it properly the first time the way that it was meant to be written and then when you see it more you're like oh you guys are stylizing I love stylizing so to hear that on different characters I think it's great a character that I am obsessed with on the cast recording is George Washington. I think Christopher Jackson's voice is great. There's like a little like rasp in it. I don't know. I love it. And he sounds so strong. And then when he's singing one last time and riffing a bit at the end, it is stunning and so emotional. Mm-hmm. One Last Time is, I think, my favorite song in the entire show because of Chris Jackson. We're gonna teach them how to say teach goodbye. Them how to Stovall, who played George Washington in Buffalo, gave us the one last time that I wanted. You want those riffs to be so strong and so powerful. We had never cried as much in a song than we did in that one. I, I mean, just, Steph. I mean, me too. <laughs> like, I, I love that song on the recording, yet seeing it, that tour in Buffalo, walking out, that's how I felt. I felt, wow, one last time is amazing. Yeah. It's certain casts give you certain moments that you love from certain shows. So that was the number one standout moment from that specific performance that we saw of it. I definitely agree. The problem with Hamilton as like a show is it's something that we've been obsessed with for for so long. We've listened to these cast recordings like, and I couldn't even think about how many times. So my two uh, characters that will just never live up to it, unfortunately. Um, Jasmine's voice, I'm, I've am i always been obsessed with. So no, Peggy will live up to her voice in my head, even though, of course, like they've been great every time I've seen them. Uh, but when you have these cast recording stylizations in your head, like that's what you know so well. And then also, Davy Diggs is like, love my life. I would die to see him perform this role live, which of course I won't until the movie comes out. It's so funny to see a song like Guns and Ships on stage because in that cast recording, it is so fast. Everyone give it up for America's favorite fighting French man. I'm taking this horse, man, rain, making red coats, weather with blood stains. And I'm never gonna stop until I make a drop of brand, I'm up and scatter the remains down. Watch me engaging them, escaping them, and raging them. And right before it starts, I'm always like, can they do it? Are they going to be able to do it? And I've never been disappointed, honestly. It's always been fine. Yeah. Um, but it's such a fun, great song. 
And David's rapping style in both as Lafayette and in the second act as Jefferson is so specific that it does feel like every person who's ever played that role is has listened to the cast recording a million times and mm-hmm. is just imitating his exact cadences, mm-hmm. probably because there's no room in there to do anything else. <laughs> yeah, I also think it's a tone of voice thing. Mm-hmm. Specifically, the Lafayette Jefferson in Toronto, Warren Egypt Franklin, he had very similar intonation to David's voice. Um, to contrast that, the most different Thomas Jefferson Lafayette that I've ever seen is James Monroe Iglehart. That is not a David impersonation. That is him literally becoming that character in front. So maybe that's why, I mean, as we've said in both episodes, I never listened to those songs before. And then when I saw that version, it was nothing like that already existed on the cast album. For anybody that doesn't know who he, James Monroe Iglehart is, his most iconic performance was the genie in Aladdin. He oozes confidence whether he's on stage or off stage. So when he came out for Thomas Jefferson and he walked down those stairs, I have never heard an audience scream for someone like that. It's, he asks for it though. Yes, Jefferson always asks for it. He wasn't asking for it when I saw it. It was just like, oh my God, who is this character? Because that's the presence that he gives off as a person. And that is how Jefferson should be played. But Toronto production was the first time that I had heard someone almost imitate David because that version of Jefferson is one that's just in my head. Going hand in hand with the Lafayette Jefferson character is the Hercules Mulligan James Madison character who from act one to act two, they are such different characters that they're playing. It is so funny uh, the way that James Madison is so serious, but Hercules Mulligan is so over the top and funny. And I, I just love those songs and I love he never has his own song but he has just moments in different songs and he's used so well I think see that's a characterization I'll also compare that to the John Lawrence Philip Hamilton characterization of almost a copycat I feel like until this Toronto production every single Philip or Lawrence that we've seen is basically Anthony Ramos in every like they look like him yeah yeah, (laughs) legitimately a copycat of him as a person and I also feel the same way about Mulligan Madison looks like Oak yeah I like the way that they use the doubling of those characters because in act one Lafayette is from France and Jefferson in act two just came back from France so the doubling of them makes sense you know John Lawrence and Philip Hamilton were these like younger guys that it seems almost Hamilton took them under his wing and Philip Hamilton is obviously his son. So it, those that characteristic makes sense. Whereas Hercules Mulligan and James Madison, maybe they don't have that exact no. through line, but <laughs> you're just, those are the two that are left. But I, the doubling of them always makes sense. And it's never confusing. There is a through line between the characters. And even the first moment you meet them in Alexander Hamilton, when they say me, I died for him, me, I fought for him. Those things happen for both versions of the character, both characters that they play. Someone that I've never been obsessed with on the cast recording, and we hit on this earlier, is Lin-Manuel Miranda's voice on Hamilton. So seeing different characterizations of Hamilton has been the most interesting for me. So I'm gonna talk about Javon McFerrin for a second, because as I said, he was the Hamilton that I saw in New York. He is a bit older than the other Hamiltons that I've seen. So he has more of that powerful, confident, I've been on stage before voices. And I think it also, was more emotional for me in the second half when he becomes a dad because it was like, oh, you could be a dad. He had such a great chemistry with his bros and had a great chemistry with 
Eliza, so I loved his interpretation of that. Um, we need to speak on our Hamilton in Buffalo, Austin Scott, as we mentioned earlier. If I was ranking my Hamiltons, I saw Ash Hunter in London, Austin Scott in Buffalo, and Joseph Morales here in Toronto. And if I was ranking them, it would be Austin Scott at the top, then Ash Hunter, then Joseph Morales. Austin Scott is young and might be one of the youngest Hamiltons to be in it. I think he's around our age. Yeah, and his voice is great, but to watch that young, excited Hamilton in the first act is exactly how it should be played. It's so believable. Mm -hmm. And that was a performance, yes, we had left thinking about George Washington, but we also left thinking about Hamilton. Am I wrong that, like, didn't Austin Scott, like, get cast in something else, like, right after we saw him in Buffalo? He went to Broadway. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, like, we we saw that and we're like, okay, that was, like, the right call because he was incredible. Anyone that is on Instagram stories and looking at the Hamilton gifts, Austin Scott is the <laughs> Hamilton, so. He, yes, I, it's interesting for a character that spans 30 years in this show that you have to cast one age somewhere in there and they have to play all those ages. So Austin Scott nailed act one Hamilton, Mm -hmm. whereas, you know, others who are maybe in their 30s or 40s are going to nail act two Hamilton a bit more. I loved Austin Scott. One, his voice is gorgeous, but also he captured the youthful energy that Hamilton is just this ball of energy that can't sit still, that Mm -hmm. can't stop writing, that can't stop moving. And he fully captured that. And there were moments when he's hanging with his friends that rang so true with that. Whereas his act two was still good, but his act one was like most authentic, perfect for me. Yeah, and I feel like in the Hamiltons that I've seen, it's the act two that gets me more than the act one because there wasn't that youthfulness and that was something that's always been missing. So to get that and to see, it would almost be interesting to like double cast, you know, (laughs) to like have a young one and an older one, which I know is obviously not something that they'll ever do and they shouldn't because someone should get the opportunity someone to play the needs role to fully. call out mid-show <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i just think it would be interesting to see and maybe that's something not in this movie quote-unquote but if they were to ever make a movie i do think that hamilton would be played as a 19 year old and then played older when he has kids i think it's also now thinking back like it speaks so much to their characterization that we see this huge shift in hamilton from a 19 year old to a 30 whatever, age whatever he, is, he, he dies, dies, I don't know. Um, whereas, like, Burr is an old soul at the beginning. He's patient. He's waiting. And you don't see that dra- dramatic shift because he doesn't grow up as much. He's already, like, older when we, when the show starts. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about the age range and the time passing, it's a little messy. <laughs> but you ignore it. You know, you have, else. you have a an actor who's in their 20s probably playing John Lawrence, uh, <laughs> Philip Hamilton, who when you first meet Philip Hamilton, he is nine years old, yeah. but he is an adult man on there. Yeah. And he's all nine-year-old and then 19 four seconds later. <laughs> yes. I'm only 19, but my mind is... <laughs> um, just to round out our Hamiltons, because to speak on a performance that grew on us, Joseph Morales as Hamilton, which weirdly enough, all three of us have seen... Shara, you saw him in 2017? Yeah. In Chicago. And he is currently playing Hamilton in Toronto only until March 29th. It took some time for us to get into this Hamilton. And I don't know if it's because he was doing some sort of weird accent (laughs) or if it was his rapping or singing style. But what we found worked so well with him is that, you know, you get your Hamiltons that are young, and excited and confident. But I haven't seen Hamilton play cocky until I saw this. 
And I think it's important for that characterization to be expressed because let's be honest, at the end of the day, like Hamilton is not a hero. He is someone that had an affair and he spent more time trying to further his career than spending it with his family and... Betrayed Lafayette. Exactly. So there are things about his life that are messy. So the character should also feel that way in some sense. Um, what he did very well was his flirtmances with the girls was awesome. There was a sexiness to his Hamilton that I've never seen before. When he first meets Angelica and we see them have this conversation in Satisfied, you're like, oh, he is so into her. And then when he basically flips the switch and goes over to Eliza, it's like, okay, so this love triangle is like being created right in front of our eyes. So I think those were the things that he did so well. His rapping style, as we said, was interesting. He was almost slower than everybody else that was on stage. It's interesting because I associate Hamilton with a character who is frantic, who can't stop writing, can't stop moving, always has to be doing something. But that was not the way he played it. He played it very slow, very relaxed. I described him a little bit as Stoner Hamilton. Yeah. And he was very behind the beat almost in a way that's like, I don't need to rush through this. Mm-hmm. I've got this. Don't really worry about is, me. It really is confidence, right? If you're like, yeah, I'm go with go at my pace. But I don't know that that was the confidence that I've seen before. That's why I threw out the term cocky. It was a cocky confidence. It's a different version of it. I I really during Alexander Hamilton when he first started rapping, I was not about it. However, throughout the whole show, his Hamilton really grew on me. Maybe he was a better Act Two Hamilton for me than Act One Hamilton for me. Like. As he, as the character matured, his characterization fit into it more than it did right at the beginning when he's a very young Hamilton. Yeah, I agree. His act two was very strong. Mm-hmm. So it was, and also when he dies, like I felt for him where I haven't in other instances. I mean, the end always makes me cry, obviously, just because of how it's written and how it's staged. But I actually like really did feel for Hamilton in this performance. So on the cast recording, the king is played by Jonathan Groff, someone who we love and his the way he says awesome wow is how I hear it every time. Yes. And so to hear other people say awesome wow, it's good, but just never quite there for me. Awesome. Wow. But I love the very sassy way he played the king. And I think that's definitely allowed future kings that I've seen or other kings that have played it to go over the top. It's given them permission to have fun with it. And I just think back to when I saw it in London for the first time, I saw Michael Gibson playing the king. He'd won the Olivier for it. And... It was interesting to see it in London because The King is the moment where I felt people in London or the audience in London relaxed a little bit. They're like, oh, this is someone we recognize. (laughs) And when he screams at the audience to sing, when he says everybody in London, everybody sang. We're like, da, 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 da. When the king in London told the whole audience to sing, when he said, everybody, we listened to the king and we went along with that. And that's never happened any other time I've seen it. It happened when I saw New York. And now that we're talking about this, I think reception is a huge thing with this show. And it's something that we touched on briefly in the in the first part of this is that how would it hit in Canada, specifically for an audience that did not grow up on this history. As I said, we are technically on the Queen's land. We don't have a king. And 
The Ed Burbage Theater is on Victoria Street. We never fought for independence. <laughs> we were granted it very peacefully. We love the king. And we still put the queen on our money. Yeah, so for... I think that was probably a comparison of that maybe Toronto and London would hit a similar way. So... As we said, seeing it last night, we are now in the second week of Hamilton being in Canada. And from what I had heard from co-workers that saw it on the first week is that the Canadians, like, did not care for this production. This is also what we've read in reviews. There's a really interesting Toronto Star review about how Hamilton is not hitting the same way in 2020 as it did in 2015. It's a great read. I highly recommend it. We can tweet out the link. And... I wonder if that's due to just people in the audience now realizing that these themes that are being brought up in this show that existed in the 1800s still definitely exist today. However, I do think that our audience played last night. Um, they enjoyed the king. We did not sing with the king. But there's lines that I know immigrants, we get the job done, did not get applause last week, whereas this week it seemed to hit. And same with um, just different moments from Burr and Hamilton. I was talking to a coworker that said she thought that there are moments in the show that warrant audience applause, whether it's literally them doing, you know, our movements to ask for it or they pause. And she was disappointed that these actors were asking it for the audience and no one was giving it back. And I didn't feel that way yesterday. The Friday night audience, everyone was ready to give them back what they wanted. But I wonder if it changes with the news cycle more than we, like, give it credit for. Like, last... I mean, I know that we're recording this a little bit earlier than it's going to come out, but um, the first week it hit in Toronto, it was a really rough week for the United States, like, news-wise, whereas, like... And that's kind of what that article that we're going to tweet out is, uh, like, the political stage has changed a lot. Like, when Hamilton was released, Obama was president, we were so optimistic about the future, immigrants had a little less trouble than they're having now in the States... And that's kind of shifting and it kind of shifts like with the news cycle week to week as well. So I don't know if that's going to affect how it plays in different cities. Mm -hmm. But to speak specifically on reception, I think what we noticed last night, the Canadian audience is very respectful, but I've also <laughs> noticed this in multiple productions that I've seen in Canada versus other cities. I think New York audiences are getting better at that, but everyone was pretty silent during the entire show until asked to applaud or after songs or when they were I, moved to applaud yeah but i legitimately think that everyone was listening i think that there's a lot of people in these toronto audiences that have never even listened to hamilton or even know what it's about and i think that's due to subscribers being an older crowd and primarily right now at least the only people that are going to see it well they also sold subscriptions on the basis of hamilton mm -hmm. this year so this is what a lot of people have bought their subscriptions for. So you best believe they paid their $1,000 or whatever to listen to Hamilton and not be disrespectful during it or not pay attention. Except I wonder also if it's going to hit with this crowd because we've talked about this before. Mervish subscribers are typically an older audience. And I was telling you guys this earlier. I'm going with my grandma next or in a couple weeks, and I literally have sat down with her with YouTube lyrics to the some of the songs and training her to be ready to go see Hamilton because she's almost 90 and is not going to be able to keep up with the rap. And without me, like, prepping her and making sure she kind of understands the story, she won't understand enough. And I wonder if there's a lot of um, people going that are a little bit more elderly that rapping is it's too fast for them to be able to understand the whole story. It's a different kind of music than you're used to listening to. And I think on the complete 
flip side and the opposite end of the spectrum to be negative here again but the people that want to see Hamilton are a younger crowd but they can't afford to see it so Mm -hmm. that's something that I think will always be a problem no matter where you see it with reception um like I said the best time I saw it was in New York but that seemed obvious because of how many New York lyrics are in this show and it's catered for a New York audience I think that we had a great audience in Buffalo and I think that the audience in Toronto is subdue right now i wonder if later in the run if like the fans have bought tickets because the subscriber tickets are gone um but it's hard to get the audience that it wants in those seats when they're that expensive but they built that for themselves right yes 100 (laughs) percent. they have priced out a lot of their target demographic and you know we're entering the lottery on the app every day haven't won it doesn't seem like enough to make it accessible. And you can hear more about the accessibility <laughs> in our previous episode where we go fully into the extent of how Hamilton can be considered a Dirty Money production. But to end this on a positive note, I think the overall is that we are still super obsessed with Hamilton. And to keep on the theme of obsessions, it is now time for our Obsessions of the Week. Before Lynn wrote Hamilton, he wrote another musical. It's not bringing on. It's not bring it on. I know we're all shocked. <laughs> Honestly, I'm shocked. This was your one chance to have a Lynn through line for bring it on and you didn't take it. You didn't take your shot. <laughs> in 2013, there was a reunion concert of the original Broadway cast of In the Heights and their performance of 96,000 is so much fun. There's a couple videos of it on YouTube, but near the end, there is just a moment where Karen Olivo and Chris Jackson just wail into their microphones and I rewind just that 30 seconds over and over and over again because it's so they're not even saying words they're just yelling Mm -hmm. it's so good that song is so fantastic so hype and then to hear those two get to show off the extent of their voices is so great. And I also love that it shows that Lin-Manuel has a company of actors that he goes back to over and over and over again. You know, Chris Jackson originated the role of Benny in In the Heights. And then he also originated George Washington in Hamilton. Karen Olivo originated the role of Vanessa in In the Heights. And then she did Angelica in Chicago. Joshua Henry was in that original Broadway cast of In the Heights, was Burr in Chicago. Mandy Gonzalez was... Nina in the original In the Heights and is currently playing Angelica on Broadway. There's a company of actors that he trusts that know his voice. There's more, I'm sure, that I'm not even talking about that know his voice, that know his style, that he elevates and uses in his productions. And I love that he has a style and this group of actors who can come together and create this gorgeous music. So it is truly this 30 seconds of this video at the reunion concert of them singing 96,000 and Chris Jackson like bends over and just sings and I love it so much. (laughs) It's so funny that your obsession is In the Heights because my obsession is also from In the Heights. So this is a song that I've been obsessed with since I saw Jordan Sparks sing it in 2010 at Live with Regis and Kelly. I'm talking about Breathe. I feel like everybody that knows me knows that I I love the song. It's a song that I wish I could sing and it's Manny Gonzalez on the original Broadway cast recording. I listen to it all the time. 
I saw Jordan Sparks sing it when I was 16, literally 10 years ago. And I feel like those are the types of songs that just stick with you. And it's so beautiful. And the way that that song builds and then basically crashes down and it's like an emotional roller coaster. I love it. Straighten the spine, smile for the neighbors. Everything's fine, everything's cool. The standard reply, lots of tests, lots of papers. Smile, wave goodbye, and pray to the sky. Oh God, what will my parents say? Can I go in there and say? I know that I'm letting you down. And I'm so interested in the movie because I want to hear it done again and done differently and i also wish that we had a jordan sparks recording of it because that was a performance that i was really obsessed with and i wish i recorded it because <laughs> if i recorded it, it would be on a pbr somewhere i can listen to it again but breathe is such a great song it's very relatable especially for you know if you're a girl in university she's struggling with university doesn't want to let down her parents her family this whole community that has lifted her up and given her the opportunity to go to school and the anxiety that I think any everyone has had a moment where they felt even just a little bit of that. So I love that song as well. I should have guessed it's an obsession because Terry, you introduced me to the song like, I don't know, five like years ago. Yeah. And it's now like a staple on my car playlist. And I absolutely cannot sing it. But man, do I felt <laughs> it alone in my car very loud. So my obsession actually is Hamilton related. Following Steph's rules that aren't official this week. I've been listening to... Jim and Tomic's podcast, Musical Theater Happy Hour, I think it's called. And I just started with, like, uh, musicals I liked. But, and then I went back. Their actually first episode was on Hamilton. And I listened to it recently for the first time. And I was obsessed with it because, again, like, what I mentioned in the part one of Hamilton is every time I, like, read or watch or learn something else about Hamilton, I realize how many more references um, and little tidbits that I didn't notice before are there and how, like, deep this um, musical goes. So um, I would definitely recommend listening to their, uh, their podcast in general, but that episode is super fun if you're a Hamilton fan. Also, just a shout out for one of our episodes, <laughs> Jim and Tommy were actually featured on our show that changed it all episode. And we would love to collab with them because we think that their deep dives are amazing. They have super long episodes, which if you are into that, like go listen to it for sure. And they are just two people that love musical theater as much as we do clearly so it's interesting to hear a different perspective and a different take on a musical theater podcast so a huge shout out to them i really like listening to their stuff because they kind of look at a different angle of the musicals than we usually talk about in our episodes so it's really cool to see like a different perspective that wraps up our obsessions of the week and also both of our hamilton episodes if you have been on this journey of hell march with us Thank you for listening. We had a great time deep diving into this musical that obviously we are still obsessed with. If you happen to be in the Toronto area and you want to see Hamilton, tickets have just been re-released again on Mervish. And there is, as we've said, the digital lottery. So download that Hamilton app. Also, if you don't download the Hamilton app, you can still enter on Lucky Seat. So you can check out both of those things. But Hamilton is playing in Toronto until May 17th. So make sure that if you are in the Toronto area to get some tickets and check out the show. But if you want to listen to our first episode of All Things Hamilton, you can subscribe to our podcast anywhere podcasts can be found. That is iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, Stitcher, 
Spotify. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Off2BOA Podcast. That's with the number two. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.